what I want to do is just highlight, as it says on the program, why engage with the third sector? Why is the third sector bringing something unique and special to the way in which care is coordinated and the way in which we all work together? And I think my starting point is, to, is the house of care. A house is only any good if it's on a street and if it's in a community. And so I think what the third sector does is take us beyond the house of care into the supportive community. And I very much take uh, Angela's point that actually what people need is support to enable them to live their lives. I had an interesting discussion the other day uh, with John Rouse at the Department of Health about care plans. And he was saying he had been on a visit recently. He was up in Harrogate at the NCAS conference and he did some visits afterwards. And he said he discovered that people didn't really want care plans, whereas particularly when they were diagnosed with something like dementia early, they wanted to be supported in living the life they wanted. And a care plan almost implied to them a dependency and a need for something that they didn't really feel they need because the day before they weren't diagnosed with anything. So why do I suddenly need a care plan when yesterday I thought I was fine? So there is something about being realistic about supportive communities and a supportive system that enables you to live the life you want to live. So to me, the third sector brings you directly into the street and the community that the house of care sits in. And I've got six things I just want to leave with you as suggestions of, to me, and as Richard said, I've had a sort of track record of working in the voluntary sector. My wife used to think I'd get a proper job one day, but she's given up now, I think. So I've always worked in the voluntary sector in health and social care. So starting with, as a director, at director level with NCH Action for Children, then through Leonard Cheshire, a muscular dystrophy, Red Cross, breakthrough breast cancer, and now Alzheimer's. So I've seen the sort of panoply of the way in which the third sector works. So my six things to leave with you are, firstly, I think what we, and these are all, I think, unique attributes that we bring to you, that we're accessible and trusted, that there's a different kind of relationship that third sector organisations have with their community from the way in which a local authority or an NHS body has, because we are of the community rather than doing things to the community. Our governance is by people in the community. Probably most of you are involved in one shape or form with voluntary organisations. And that might be a charity involved in health and social care, but it might be your church or faith group. It might be your youth association. Um, it might be any kind of body in your community. So I think that's the first thing. And I'm pleased that I'm chair of National Voices, working with Jeremy Taylor, the, the chief exec. And one of the things we've seen at National Voices is the value that we bring to the debate by having a closeness to service user involvement uh, and service user voice. So we've got over 150 national voluntary organisations in National Voices, the sort of most representative body. And lots of those are small organisations, often working in, in often relatively discrete disease areas, but they have a voice of their consumer, of their participants, that you don't get anywhere else. And very quickly, in, in sort of real time, we can go out to those organisations and get back commentary from people who are directly experiencing the impact of decisions that are being made in the health and social care system. So that accessibility and the trust that comes with it, I think, is, is really, really important. Second one is expertise. Because of our specialisms, because of the way we've grown up, because of that closeness, we have a body of knowledge and expertise that I don't think can be matched anywhere elsewhere in the health and social care system. I mean, a couple of examples for me are the, from Alzheimer's Society, is the helpline that we run the information guide we've just produced. So the NHS commissioned us to produce the, the dementia guide, which is now going to be provided to every patient at the point of diagnosis. And it's a, it's a little paperback book. And it reflects the fact that when you're diagnosed with something, you don't immediately have the questions during the, lucky, if you're lucky, 10 minutes you have 
with the consultant, the questions occur to you at three o'clock the following morning or three days later, and you can't and you can't make an appointment to ask a question. So you've been told you've got an appointment in six months. That doesn't help you. So this is a book that's been produced that everybody gets, and it is your it sits on the mantelpiece. It's a 140-page paperback. It, it's not something you you read overnight. You have it there. But what it what was interesting was that. We were commissioned as Alzheimer's Society to produce it because the NHS couldn't produce it. And then it's, it's been endorsed by the relevant bodies. So the Royal College of GPs, the Royal College of Psychiatrists, ADAS, all these bodies have endorsed it. But they needed us to produce it because we had that knowledge, we had that experience that brought all the elements together. So I think that expertise is really important. An interesting recent development, which I think is fascinating as an example of using that expertise, is a number of mental health charities who have now set them up themselves up as a, a, a support service to commissioning support units. So they're all to direct to C CCG. So they're saying, we've got this expertise. Actually, you can buy direct from the people who've got the knowledge, which is the charities who've got that direct experience. And, and they've put themselves into a consortium with a, an ability to support commissioners, which I think is fascinating and probably something we should see more of. Third area, again, unique to the third sector, but it brings something to the care mix that I don't think is there, is that we're not confined to statutory responsibilities. We don't just do what it says in the law that we should do. We do the things that we know need to be done. Indeed, that's the DNA of voluntary organisations. The reason people set up charities is to change the world. You know, if you look at all the founders from Bernardo in the 19th century to Leonard Cheshire after the Second World War, you know, through to more recent examples, every time it's somebody who actually is a bit of a radical and a rebel and actually believes that the system is wrong and they're going to change it. I think charities go wrong when they lose that and they become just sort of agents of state operation. The good charities are ones where we continue to work and, to be honest, use voluntary income because we can raise money from people. So we've got free money that we can use for the things that really matter. A good example from, again, from my current job at Singing for the Brain started in a local community group, well, actually, there's a bit of contradiction or co competition. So the people in Kent claim it started in Kent and the people in Wiltshire claim it started in Wiltshire, but um, I claim it started in both simultaneously on the same night. Um, <laughs> and it avoids the argument. But actually, it started with people at the grassroots level saying, we know we can engage with people with dementia through the medium of singing in a way that speech doesn't work. And it's grown, and now, go to the Wiltshire example, from starting as something totally done, voluntarily funded, by Alzheimer's Society from the local group there is now fully funded by a combination of funding from the local authority and the NHS because the value has been demonstrated. So part of that not confined to, to statutory is also incubating new ideas, that we can be sort of fleet of foot. We, we're not caught up in loads of bureaucracy. We can decide today to do it and we can do it tomorrow. And so long as we've raised the voluntary income and actually for fundraising, having that ability to raise the income depends on being innovative. That's what people want. They don't want to give money to charities to do what the state should be doing. They want us to go further and faster than the state. The current one we're looking at in, in Alzheimer's Society is what we call Home Care Plus. So we're saying, how do we combine domiciliary care, which will never be funded to, at an adequate level, certainly should be funded at better than 15-minute visits, but it will never be at an adequate level. How do we combine that with the army of volunteers we have who can, for example, develop befriending services where performance is measured not by how many people you get to see in half-hour visits, but the, 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 the outcome for the person where the befriender who's a volunteer stays as long as the person wants and does what the person wants, does what they, you know, goes, goes and watches a, watches a football match or goes to the pub or sits at home, whatever. It's that combination that we can put together. Another one I like is Scope's Activities Unlimited programme, 
And I think it is it Suffolk or Sussex. I don't know if there's anyone from Scotland. It's either Suffolk or Sussex. I always get the two confused. But this is a programme where people with personalised budgets can go online and find out about a range of activities that they can buy in a way that goes way beyond what the local authority would have to offer or the health service would have to offer. Fourth one is that we are connected because we are of wider society, that bit about being the community that the House of Care sits in, we're connected to society in its widest way and we can con connect care into that. So the current example is the work we're doing on dementia with dementia-friendly communities, where I co-chair with Angela Rippon, who's a fairly tireless person who keeps me on my toes, but she really drives it forward, a group for the Prime Minister to create dementia-friendly communities. And we've got sitting around the table... We've got the local government association, we've got the health bodies, we've got the, those people. But interestingly, we also have one representative from each sector of wider society, all of whom take on board tackling dementia from a community-wide issue. It's not going to be solved, it's not even going to be supported for people just by health and social care. So we've got a bank, we've got a building society, we've got a high street retailer, supermarket, we've got a utility company, we've got the bingo association, we've got a bishop, we've got the Women's Institute... They all sit there and they all commit to action in their sector, but actually also supporting and understanding the actions others are taking. So that ability of the third sector to bring everybody else together is, I think, absolutely vital. And again, nobody else can do it. And we can see through the Dementia Friendly Communities Programme uh, how it can work. We also provide some of the quality control. So if you take Dementia Friendly Communities, we're absolutely determined... And if it was left to local authorities, it might actually go this way because of the desire to produce visibility. We're determined it won't be, which many of us will remember from the 1980s, when councils declared themselves nuclear-free, where a sign was put up saying, you're now entering a nuclear-free zone, as if the missile would sort of see the sign and turn around and go back again. We're saying that actually being a dementia-friendly community has to be lived experience. And so we quality control it and say, you've got to get evidence back, which we can facilitate from service users, from people with dementia, to say whether what you're putting in place is making a difference. Because if it's not making a difference, you can't say you're becoming dementia-friendly. Two more. My fifth one is about our lobbying and campaigning role, which I think you, in, those of you working in NHS, those of you working in local authorities, you need to use us. Uh, we can go and lobby ministers, we can lobby cabinet members in councils in the way that you can't because it's hard to go and lobby your boss ultimately. We haven't got that problem. It's interesting, when ministers are elected, the people they often meet first from, say, health ministers are the charities. They're not even the royal colleges. They often meet the charities first and listen to us more because they know that we're connected to people in their constituencies who will also argue the case with them and represent that voice. I always enjoy going to party conferences not because you have great nights out going to the bar, but actually because you get the ministers without the civil servants, because civil servants aren't allowed to go. And I remember when I was working in cancer, I had a fantastic time where I phoned up the National Cancer Director, Mike Richards, and told him what I just got his minister to commit to, because he wasn't there to stop the minister doing it. <laughs> so, you know, there is something, and a very simple example, there's something charities can do, which is get that lobbying message across, get that campaigning message across, and be the critical friend to bring about the difference. And the final one, and probably this trumps all the others, is that we are only interested in outcomes and quality. We have nothing else that drives us. Our performance is measured by a quality result for our constituents. If Alzheimer's society stopped making a difference for people with dementia, they would stop being our members, they'd stop giving us our donations, we'd go out of business. And the same for every single charity. That's the only thing that we're interested in. So whereas other performance measures can drive other organisations, not least 
financial performance or, or, or getting to a, a target which is normally an input target, not an outcome target, our only criteria is quality of outcomes. And therefore, we can work with you to guarantee that you can be more like that, but you can use us in the services we can run in partnership to get those results. So I hope that's given you in, in a few minutes some headlines of where the third sector adds value. Thank Jeremy, you. Jeremy, great. Thank you.